Miss Lawson and Miss Crabbe, this is your five-minute call. You have five minutes until the commencement of this evening's talk. Five minutes. Thank you. Clang! Love, that was one hell of a clang. <laughs> one hell of a clang. I know. I think I've really started 2016 right up the top of the leaderboard, clang-wise, I think. <laughs> I think you have. <laughs> oh, she is a lovely person. I, you know when oh, well, you, know, you meet somebody that you are nervous about interviewing because you think, God, what if they just turn out to be some sort of awful beast? She was lovely. Was very, she? very, very gracious. That's yeah. nice. And is the charm that she has... I mean, you know, people talk about Bill Clinton being charming and he makes you feel like the only person in the room. Like, what's yeah. her shtick? Oh, absolutely. So I turned up to meet her and she was straight over for a bit of a hug. And I'm gosh, I've been looking forward to this so much. And I mean, you know, the woman spent her time in Adelaide, Australia, just being crawled over by all and sundry. You know, I'd be surprised if she'd ever had two seconds to put her head up and go, God, holy shit, what's next? <laughs> but she was completely... Uh, Charming. Anyway, it was um, uh, it was great. Hey, listen, um, I should explain why we are, uh, you know, sound like we're on a median strip. You know, this is not part of the. <laughs> it's not the part of the quest for really crappy service that we're uh, always pursuing here at Chat Ten Looks Three. It's because we've tried to come to an exhibition at the SH Urban Gallery, which is right next to the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And of course, being incredibly efficient, we have failed to look up what the right time is, uh, what, what time it opens. And in fact, we're just very early. So now we are perched on a patch of grass next to a, oh, what, 10 lane? 10 lane freeway, yeah. yeah. So yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, that's the background noise. But we did, amazingly for us, do a little audio check before it started. And yeah. it seemed like it would sort of be acceptable. Really <laughs> and we're only filling time till it actually opens. Then we'll yeah. pause and we'll do the rest from the cafe. But the opening and your clanging, your shameless clanging, brings me to your late Christmas present, which was not ready for the podcast at the end say, of the year. I never thought this moment would come. So why don't you start with that one? Okay, I will. <laughs> God, this is all a bit exciting. I love how your wrapping paper, apart from saying season's greetings and so on, also says 25th of December. Like it's actually <laughs> technically and just very obviously out of date. But nonetheless, uh, my, my very son's well birthday done. day, his stuff is wrapped in Christmas paper. Oh yeah, paper. happy birthday. Ah! <laughs> okay, that is fantastic. Okay, so it's um, a very cool t-shirt, which some thoughtful person <laughs> has had printed on the front with a single word in, is that Comic Sans? It is. It's a very fun font uh, saying, clang! <laughs> <laughs> so I want to see you wearing that around the place. I am happy to. It's, uh, it's the first foray into the Chat 10 merchandise. Oh my God, yeah. you're so right. Yep. Okay. So let's right. see how many other people well, start wearing them. Wears, and if anybody wants to put in a bid for it, it'll be, <laughs> you know, 14 at uh, only one Poorly administered output. Very good. Oh, it's lovely. Thank you. That's all right. And then that <laughs> and one. there's more. There's more. But wait, there's more. Something for me to throw out. Something for you to throw out immediately. Have you thrown out that book I gave you yet? No, but Brendan thinks what we should do is take out my actual phone number and actual home address and um, put in, like, an, an email contact. Yeah. Set it free into some, you know, lifeline oh, book thing right. and, then, and see if somebody can actually find it, one of our Chat 10 listeners, and return it. Oh, that's a really good idea. Yeah. Like, like tagging a bird Just a little, exactly, just a All little right. experiment. Let's so we might that. do I that. I think we should just leave your contacts in there for fun. Um, <laughs> actually, also, um, because we're doing a uh, Valentine's Day show together in Adelaide, yes. uh, maybe we should, you know... 
give people tickets to, to that. Yes, they that's find it. Heaps of fun. It's yeah, that, and if you want to delight. come to that, it's part of. Oh, hang on. That's so. Tell everyone what your other. Oh, is. Olive Kettridge. <laughs> yes. So oh, you been. know, this is exactly the nudge that I've needed because yes. I haven't watched it, and I know I'm going to love it. You will. So and yeah. You uh, just frankly will not shut up about it. So exactly. Um, so you need to get it. Plus, it's got Murray in it as well, which is you know always a recommendation. Um, now just, oh, thank you. That's all right, love. Just finishing on the Adelaide stuff. Um, so oh, yeah. listeners, if you want to come, we're doing a show um, in the Adelaide Fringe Festival. It's really your show. I'm just interloping. Um, it's an evening with Annabelle Crab. With Annabelle Crab, and there's me, and there's Adam Law, and there's a couple of mystery guests. But yeah. anyway, it should be extremely fun. And if it goes all ass up, it'll be just hugely amusing. So, um, not really, what could possibly go wrong? Well, the thing is, though, Adelaide at fringe time is so great that I mean, I would almost go to the trouble of putting this thing on, you know, just to be in Adelaide at that time. Oh, so okay. If you if you do have a, a you know a yen for a a cool weekend of lots of great stuff happening in a um, very funky little town uh, at fringe time. Um, then come along. Come on, come on over. All right, I've got a third Christmas present for you. Oh, oh God! Whoosh. That's so good. I know what this is going to be already. Thank you. Part one. Flora's childhood, 1942 to 1958. <laughs> I love the ambition of a 13-year-old. For anyone who hasn't previously listened to Chat 10, this is uh, a novel that I wrote when I was in eighth grade called Flora's Fancies, which Crab has been dying to get her hands on. Chapter 1. I hate you, Aunt Muriel. I hate you. These were the first words Flora could ever recall uttering, and the truest. She had hated Aunt Muriel for as long as she could remember. And it wasn't just Aunt Muriel, it was those horrid, horrid cousins too. <laughs> it's always a horrid cousin. Flora truly hated living with Aunt Muriel, in case we haven't established that. It wasn't by choice on Flora's part, it certainly wasn't on Muriel's either. Muriel Walters was under an obligation to her dead sister. Oh my Flora's mother, Muriel's sister, had died giving birth to her child, and shortly afterwards, Flora's father had committed suicide. As it does, it's gothic, isn't it? Right, <laughs> no one's got the plague yet. This is just the tip of the iceberg of the gothicness of this. <clears throat> As a dying wish, Flora's mother requested that Muriel take baby Flora. Muriel loved her sister, so she heeded her wish, but she bitterly hated Flora. Flora had taken her sister's life. Muriel was reminded of the secret agony she felt whenever Flora was around, even when Flora's name was mentioned. Muriel had to punish Flora for the life she had taken. It must have made margarine usage very difficult. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just, I'm just reading to the end of a certain piece of tragedy. Muriel had four of her own children, so Flora was an unwelcome addition. Muriel encouraged her children to be hateful towards Flora, and that they were. One of the children was Flora's age, and a more conceited little bitch could never be encountered. Wow! <laughs> Saucy! Her name? Megan. Flora was given any clothes Megan didn't want. When Megan didn't want something, she would accidentally tear it, stain it, and present it to Flora with, Here, Flora, you're lucky you got this, but what a pity you can't have a lovely, fashionable dress like my new one. And Aunt Muriel would add, Yes, Flora, your cousin is very kind to you, and I didn't hear a word of thanks, not a word. Flora's other cousins were cruel, but not like Megan. The two boys, Richard and John, liked to play practical jokes on Flora, like put toads in her bed and rip any of Flora's pretty dresses to threads. 
The only cousin who was the least bit merciful was Persis. Persis had the loveliest nature, and when Flora... As in the Greek... I don't, I don't know where I got these Not names from. You should see okay. some of the names in subsequent chapters. Persis had the loveliest nature, and when Flora came, she offered her friendship. But dear Aunt Muriel quickly stepped in, and Persis was severely dealt with. Although Persis was lectured, she still managed to give Flora kindly looks and slip her cakes and sweets. But at the tender age of eight, Persis died of pneumonia. <laughs> <laughs> and Flora lost her only friend in the world. God, I think we'll like have to leave of, it there, love. It's a bit rich. It's kind of like Enid Blyton meets Hanya Yanagihara. <laughs> I reckon you can tell what I must have been reading at that age, which must have been a big dollop of Danielle Steele with a healthy serve of Jackie Collins on the of, side. A bit of Dickens? Oh, no, that's right. That's right. <laughs> We've never read Dickens, so it can't have been that. Why would I have been bothering Cue with Dickens when I, had, when I had Danielle Steele on the, on the t- on oh, tap? Well, it's very... Florid. Yes, it is and very gripping. Yes, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're desperate. I'm unwillingly hooked. I was when I was reading it to a death of person. <laughs> I was reading it. Oh my god! I was cacking myself at the lay-it-on levels of just oh, because it's not enough that she's got no friends. Now she's the only friend she's got's got a dark pneumonia. Yeah. And as I said, then it's just that's just a, the tip of the tragedy that I have laid out for this poor girl. <laughs> That is so great. Anyway, you mentioned Hanya Yanagihara, yeah. which I couldn't read that. Book. I know because you notoriously became one of the few people ever in the history of uh, First Tuesday Book Club uh, not to read one of the required books. Mm, one of the required texts, yes, well, because it was it's a very uh, brutal and graphic story of somebody's suffering, um, and I just didn't want to read it. It just goes on and on. And yeah. Actually, Bridget Delaney wrote this... Um, nice piece in the Guardian this week about how that book has just, you know, spread like a kind of crown of thorns starfish <laughs> on the summer holidays because it's like oh, yeah. definitely one of the books of the moment. And, it's called you know, A Little Life, by the way. It's called A Little Life and it's really long and I in fact started it and finished it on holidays but I really felt like I was chained to it because it was like a, it's not like what I imagine an ice addiction must be. Like, you're not right. having any fun, but yet you can't stop doing it. And right. I was like that reading that book. Because I, I could not put it down. And I was, you know, doing that thing where you sort of make up trips to the loo so that you can, you know, read right. for five minutes and avoid the children and that sort of thing. Um, and yet I just also couldn't wait for it to be over, you know. Right. And it's really hard yakka, very unpleasant. Right. But after a while, and also, like, there's all sorts of things that are annoying about the book, too. Like, right. the protagonists sort of veer between kind of just risible levels of privilege, you know. Like, of the four of them that sort of come through college, these four guys, there's hardly any women in the book. Um, they, uh, you know, one of them is a sort of famous architect. One of them is a sort of incredibly famous Oscar-winning actor. Right. One of them is... Um, an incredibly successful commercial lawyer, and the other one is this celebrated artist. Like, oh, right. None of them has just gone on to be a normal person. You know, right. Kind of, and the, the one who's the um, lawyer is just unspeakably haunted by all these things that happened to him as a child. He doesn't ever tell his friends what happened, but they know that he was hurt and damaged in some ways, horribly physically afflicted as a result of his sufferings. And over the course of the book, you find out, you know, exactly what happened. It's just awful and just the waves of awfulness that are incredibly um, you know 
precisely detailed, mm. so it's got that horribleness about it. So, so are you glad at the end that you read it or not? Not especially, actually. Right. I mean, and, and like people are saying it's life-changing or whatever. I don't, I don't think it was especially well written, and it was certainly like just viciously addictive, right? But also horrible as well. You know, right. sort of, and and the the weird thing that happens, and it, and I guess that the theme of the book that is very powerfully realised is that that the aftermath of abuse is inescapable, that it's um, that it can be, you know, this for some people crushing burden mm. out from which they can never crawl, no matter how much good fortune, no matter how much they're slathered with love in mm. their um, their kind of future life. And that's it's a very hard thing to kind of countenance, I think, when you read a book like that. Mm. But also, I mean, this is a terrible thing to say, but also by the end of it, I felt like giving him a bit of a punch too, because I was just a bit like, Jesus, mate, you know, like... Look how uh, much you've got now and... And uh, anyway, now the interesting thing is um, that uh, there's been this spat going on uh, between the New York Review of Books and the the author and the editor of, of A Little Life, where the reviewer just went on this absolute attack on the book and just said, listen, you know, that level of grinding detail is totally unnecessary, you know, it's a, it's a sort of dupe on the reader and so on and so right. forth. And um, the editor of the right. book has written in, you know, very vigorously saying... Well, that's, so sorry, who that's said bullshit. that? A critic. Oh, a critic, A yeah. critic, yeah, OK, saying, yeah. Saying, well, that's bullshit, right. and, you know. Um, and then the reviewer sort of fired back saying, well, look, you, the editor, made exactly the same criticism during the process of right, the book. But right. Tanya, the author, has said, yeah, you know, I had lots of arguments with my editor who said, look, it's just too dial confronting. We right. dial it down. And they didn't dial it down. So right. you've got this weird sort of hall of mirrors where the editor is kind of like defending the argument against the argument that he made, you know, right, the right. put together. It's kind of a, yeah. Well, that's interesting because I actually, I know it's like I'm only about 25 years behind the times, but... The main book I've been reading over my summer break is The Stand by Stephen King because I've never oh. read any Stephen King. Is that the similar one where there's, like, a group of friends and there's something... No, it's a deadly virus with, like, a 99% fatality rate being released in well, the United well, that States. that would be my other guess. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or, you know, rabid dog related. <laughs> now, I've not read any Stephen King because I don't like horror in books or film. I just I don't like the feeling of being terrified. And... Um, so I've just sort of avoided him. But he has a reputation as a very good writer yeah. and that he really hooks you yeah. in and he writes himself a lot on the craft of writing. Yeah. So I thought, all right, I like plot-driven books, so I thought I'm going to try and read a Stephen King and see how I go with it. And so oh, yeah, The right. Stand is one. I Googled, you know, best Stephen King and The Stand is frequently the top. You know, I've got an edition that is um, has a lengthy foreword by Stephen King saying this is not the edition of or the version of The Stand that was released and became popular, this is actually the version that I delivered and it's 25% longer than what was published and here's my justification for putting it out like this because I'm the person who did the edit to get the 25% out and I felt that it works perfectly well how I've actually put it out first time round but the stuff that I cut out was basically people's backstories and sort of detail that wasn't ah. necessary to the furtherance of the plot, but it just gives you a better understanding of the characters. And so I thought, yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, as I'm reading it, I'm actually finding it a little bit slow. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm wondering if 
it was the right decision for them to cut right, a quarter of it right out. Yeah, you should, yeah, I should have got the pacier uh, version, probably. But I'm not... I'm so actually, was that done with his... Like, was it done because his amateur suggested, look, you're going to lose this? Oh, it's about 1,300 pages long now with God. the material that he's added. He's a bit of a fat book man, though, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he is. So, and it's not... I mean not loving it. I'm not finding it particularly scary either, actually. Although I'd say, judging from the other plot synopses that I read of other of his work, it's possibly the least, I don't know, supernaturally scary of his right, work. Okay. It's yeah. just, yeah. But anyway, it's, I mean, I'm about 400 pages into it, I guess, and I'm still reading it. But it's not like I'm sitting here talking to you thinking, hurry up, hurry up, I need to get back to yeah. that Stephen King novel. That's a great feeling. Hey, now, should we... I think the gallery's probably open, so what yeah. we should do is and we we'll go are, inside, I we'll see the show. I think the early stages of carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh, and too, heat but... stroke. Oh, look, it's just the problems that we have. Oh, oh, you're trying to go to a the gallery. The sacrifices we make oh, for no. you listeners to get this thing happening. All right, we'll come back to you in a minute when we're in a civilised location with a cup of tea. Yep. <laughs> I just think I think it might be a positive performance there. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite bracing. Wow, I didn't even get to speak to you when there was a chat interruption. <laughs> um, I couldn't even hear what that lady said. Does she want you to write something? She said, I want you to write something about that person. We're just oh, at a cafe with a very bracing uh, <laughs> table service manner. Yeah. Bracing is the worst. Playing. But I've got a, this cherry strudel that I'm going to chop in half, so that better. should hopefully solve the problem. So we just that was a gorgeous exhibition that we've just oh. had a look at. So we're at the SH Irvin Gallery in Sydney. We just... Oh, oh. <laughs> God, can you imagine how much trouble I'm going to get in by that woman? I know. Just, like, we're trying to keep a low profile, and sales is just throwing oh half God. the on the and floor. It's just It's just cherry strudel. I will oh. eat the bit that's been on the floor, because I grew up on a farm. Oh, and, yep, I think you've just about... You're going to have to ask for another napkin, and that's going to rather upset the apple cart. <laughs> <laughs> Dear. All right, so now I'm just on my hands and knees <laughs> on the floor. He's coming back and gonna get right in trouble. Okay, it's all good. <laughs> okay. Mm. You're under control. Right. Yeah. That was a unobtrusive. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the strudel can actually be cut in half. We're just gonna have to yeah. hack away at it ourselves. Well, it is. It's the... now shattered into, you know, oh my god. Oh, the stress. Oh I feel exhausted. Mm. And it's probably undone the soothingness of that exhibition. It has a little. So, the exhibition is um, this lovely little uh, collection of, um, it's the 21st, um, uh, a lovely little collection of Margaret Preston works, Grace Crossington Smith and Cressida Campbell. Now, I'm here for the Campbells mainly. You? Um, oh, geez, hard to pick that apart actually because I really am a big fan of all of them and pretty inspired idea, I think, to have an exhibition featuring yeah. all three of them. Yeah. Mm. Good strudel. But all of them are kind of similar because they do, they're best known for kind of very quiet interiors, you know, and stylized sort of florals and right. a bit of harbour stuff as well. Mm. And and the heaps of the Prestons in there, like you've seen on postcards, mm. and you see, like they're really famous works, mm. but it's so 
fabulous to see them up close and just really appreciate that kind of oh. incredible jewel-like quality they Fantastic. have. Fantastic. tiny, you know, but so perfect. Am I misremembering, but did Drusilla and Jessica write a book about Grace Cossington's head? Thank you. I don't know. I'll have to have a look, because I'm sort of I'm quite intrigued by her. I, I wrote a book, I think, that somebody wrote, and I think it was her about... She went off to Paris to say she lived in Taramara and right. so lots of the landscapes are Taramara type things. Yes, it's very nice, thank you very much. I don't know. Um, getting wrapped over the knuckles. Um, I don't know much about her. Um, anyway, it's a really lovely exhibition. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Oh dear. Well, I think it's pretty spectacular about all of them, but. Because my favourite is Cressida Campbell, I'm just, you know, I would, I'm not a very acquisitive person, but you know, part of me thinks that I will really die of <laughs> devastation if I don't at some point have a Cressida Campbell. <laughs> it's oh, in my lair. It's so it's nice, so isn't it? And of course, so expensive that it's just I know. ridiculous. But I know, but it would be so lovely, wouldn't it? Although, thank God for people that lend their works. Well, I mean, there's heaps of things in this little exhibition that's not huge, but that I've never seen before, and they're from private collections, which means probably Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I also think that there is a kind of... Because so many people paint flowers, for instance, mm. and flowers and gardens and interiors have been of such an obvious historical subject for painters and so on. To do it heroically in a way that is instantly recognisable as you, which is exactly what you is Yes. R-A-C-75-B-A? No. No, it isn't. No, thank you for checking. Um, A-C-75-B-A, you are in deep strife. <laughs> I might put the um, cafe lady onto you. <laughs> That'll be a clash of the title. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, you're probably not going to get to finish a train of thought in this I know, podcast. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yep, go on. Like if you're sort of, you know, Ben Quilty or somebody who's got this sort of really individual style and, mm. you know... Um, when you make kind of unorthodox things or themes, yeah. then you're, you know, recognisable because of that collection of, mm. you know, your choice of subject and your, mm. you know, style or whatever. But these people are remarkable because they choose a, um, you know, a kind of, in some way, the hackneyed subject, but make mm. it so immediately identifiable as themselves. Mm. Like, I reckon I could pick a Cressida Campbell nasturtium out of the crowd. Right. And the fact that she can be so incredibly individual working in woodblock yeah. you know, carving, which is just, you know... That just, just blows my mind. And the size of some of the woodblocks in this exhibition as well. There's like. a great one, which is the interior of Margaret Ollie's house, but it's clearly like Margaret Ollie's house on a day where Margaret's had the, the, the housekeeper in or something because it's quite a bit tidier than the self-portraits <laughs> of the Margaret Ollie house. Yeah, it's like Margaret Ollie's house on Thursday. The cleaner comes on Wednesday. I wonder if Margaret Ollie ever felt any pressure, like, oh, God, the cleaner's coming, I better clean up. No, I think she's like, I just might squirt a bit more, you know, um, cadmium orange around the place. <laughs> and then I'll throw um, a cat at the situation. Now, what else have you been... Um, it's not going to be like an epic podcast today, but have you been reading or watching anything fun on holidays? Um, 
I've started watching, because a thousand people told me that I should, um, Making a Murderer, which is that right. Netflix series. Like yeah, everyone's part, talking about one that. Hour. And apart from my unfortunate knack of sort of doing sort of work after dinner and then starting watching it at about 10.30, mm. I've got the nods quite often by the end of it. And it's annoying because it really is proper, proper dripping. And it's the story of... Uh, Oh my gosh, it's, it's an epic story um, uh, about uh, a guy, an American guy, in a small town, from a big sort of unruly family that runs a car yard and is sort of looked down upon um, by everybody around. He's um, arrested, he's a bit of a no-good Nick, you know, he's been in jail a couple of times. And he's charged with the uh, very violent rape of um, one of the town's more well-to-do citizens. Um, this lady's going for a jog in a, along a lake. And um, it turns out um, that it's a completely false conviction. You know, the police have kind of framed him up a bit or at least leapt to the conclusion that this is him. Right. The lady has identified him from a line-up, but only, when, only after she's been shown the picture and said, this is the guy, isn't it? Is this the guy? You know. Anyway, the whole um, documentary, and it's a documentary um, that is based, it has no narrator, it is based only on archive footage oh. and interviews with um, the protagonists. And it was filmed over 10 years. I mean, oh. it's an extraordinary story because what happens is, like, they do release him from prison and so all happens in the first episode. Um, and he becomes a local kind of hero of um, false conviction, you know, like... Um, right. And in fact, the state legislation has changed to ensure that this can never happen again and there's an inquiry into the local police and so on. And he, um, and then he gets arrested and charged again over a murder. Like, it's... I'm only on now episode three, but right. it is... Um, it's a very gripping story, but it, it's also just an extraordinary TV for the thoroughness with right. which the producers have put together this story without any external aids of narration and so on. Did, the degree of difficulty of that is so high. Did they have full access to him and his story and also the police side and the police story? So yeah, did they, they, had, did everyone... they, they had him. Um, they've got prosecutors and defence. They, they haven't got a lot of the police, but they've got a lot of um, evidence given in the state inquiry into the... Um, the right. conduct of the cops at the time. Right. And they've also got, and it makes it a little bit like Serial. I mean, it's got that same vibe because of the wealth of information and archive information that they've managed to snuffle out. But there's lots of um, phone calls um, which were obviously taped in prison between the prisoner and the member of the family. And those are the most, I think, affecting part of it. You get this sort of, even though it's filmed over 10 years, you get this real-time assessment of the state of oh, mind yeah. of everybody at the time. And this family is really kind of whacked out as well. There's, there's full of sort of arguments and they're fighting with each other. But the, the parents of this guy are um, this incredibly stalwart couple that are just sort of getting older and sadder and, you know, they, they never stop sort of believing that their son is innocent, you know, or the first crime and the second. Right. Um, but it's a real statement, too, about um, how poor people fare in the justice system mm. in America because 
the local cops come out of it so badly, but what is the most um, powerful thing that you have brought home to you again and again is um, the lack of options if you are a very poor person who's been falsely accused of something, you know? And one of the most extraordinary sequences, um, and it comes a couple of shows in, and I mean, I'm not giving all that much away, I don't think, but at one point, um, this guy's 16-year-old nephew becomes involved in the second set of charges, and there's a protracted piece of footage that is the 16-year-old's um, police interview. They haven't given him a lawyer, there's no member of his family present, and they're questioning him and trying to suggest to him that he had a role in this murder and that he helped his uncle do this murder. And by the end of it, he's so... And he's very... He's pretty dim, this kid, too. He's very worn down that he's just sort of agreeing to everything they say. Yeah. It's, it's just frightening and some so depressing. There's some interesting stuff that has been done over the years about the su suggestibility of um, suspects or witnesses, depending how the police phrase questions, and, things, and particularly for interrogations that go around really long time, people pretty much start agreeing to anything to get out of it. So reminding me a bit from how you're describing it of a documentary series that I loved a few years ago called The Staircase. Oh, right. So is it sort of like that in tone or? I've not seen The Staircase. Right. It's been recommended to me by so many people. And when I said that to my sister-in-law, Lindy, that I was watch watching Making a Murderer at her suggestion, she said, oh, look, you know, have you got round to the staircase yet? And I said, no, but... Um, I think I've got that on DVD. Oh, oh she's really? got one too. Oh, yeah. that's good. The Staircase, for anyone who hasn't seen it, is a documentary where a guy charged with murder gives full fly-on-the-wall access to a documentary crew. The case is that his wife has been found dead at the bottom of a staircase and appears to have been bludgeoned and you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and again, I'm not giving anything away. It's a fairly early reveal. Um, it turns out that he has a former wife also found it at the bottom of the staircase. But it's one of those cases where it's constantly all is not as it appears, and just when you think, oh, he definitely did it, it you just then also think it clearly didn't do it. Um, it's really, really riveting. It was absolutely, couldn't stop watching it. Before I had children, of course, so, but I couldn't binge watch six hours of TV without falling asleep. Yeah. Um, the whole Netflix and, you know, everybody being in competition to, you know, produce these sort of gripping documentary style series. Oh, amazing. I must say... Oh, really? You want to hear what Lee must say? It's Brendan here. I'll tell you what she must say. She must say a few certain things contractually obligated so that we can continue this podcast. One of them is, if you like the podcast, visit us on iTunes and give us a review. Look, we've got more than 950 five-star reviews. Mate, we can always use some more. And for all of the links and everything you've heard on the podcast so far, visit the website, chat10looks3.com. That's chat, the number 10, looks, the number 3.com. All right, but is that really what she went on to say? There's no way to find out except to keep listening. All right, Brendan, out. Hey, so I've been watching on uh, Netflix a show called Bloodline that stars Coach Taylor from Friday oh, Night Lights, nice. Kyle Chandler, uh, and Ben Mendelsohn. Is this and the one you've been sending me kitchen shots from? Yes. <laughs> They've got a, a very nice southern kitchen that I think would look good in Crab's house. <laughs> so I've got the mankiest world's mankiest old kitchen and like, it is, it's got that kind of, you know, bits of mould and sort of slightly oh, off cupboards and stuff and it was in our house when we moved in you know seven years ago and 
I, I hate throwing things out and making landfills. So I was like, no, no, we're not redoing the kitchen. We're going to work it into the ground first. But I think I'm nearly at the point where I'm like, well, I use it all the time. It's a film set for, the, for our program. And, and you happened to mention to me in the most briefest of, of passing manners that you were thinking about it, and then I'm just they bombarding you with, I'm watching this show, look at this kitchen, this is the kitchen day. Anyway, you could be watching like some, you know, um, hostage situation in the White House, you know, in live time, you'd be like, yes, but wow, look at those cabinetry. <laughs> Um, so this show, Bloodline, it's a family yes, drama. Show. A terrific kitchen. Family, don't family don't drama, great kitchen. Um, the Rayburn family, and Ben Mendelsohn is the sort of black sheep son, and so he returns home, chaos ensues. Um, you know, it's I love Kyle Chandler, as I know you do, um, and he's great. But also, Ben Mendelsohn, God, he's an interesting person to watch because you can't make your mind up as a viewer, and he's sort of like this in everything. He's got this interesting quality in everything. Is he actually dangerous and unpredictable and a bit of a psycho, or is he weak and just pathetic and no threat at all, and he's got this sort of braggadocio hiding the fact that he's just a weakling? Yeah. He's got all of these qualities and also a sort of vulnerability along with the weakness that you sort of want to look after him a little bit. And then just when you're feeling like, oh, he's just a weak, snivelling, then he fixes you with some gaze and you think, oh, he's a psycho. He's terrifying. He's Are really dangerous. Are you this all into all of his roles or just this one? I think he brings all of those qualities to a lot of his roles, yeah. which I think makes he's him very watchable. Actor, I think. Yeah. I mean, just weirdly underrated, I think. In... Yeah, he's having a bit of a burst of yeah. success now. He was in Girls as well. Yeah. He was in Harvard. I mean, he was excellent in that. Um, Excuse me. Someone else is getting Someone else is Someone else is not us. Not away! It's awesome. It's like that bit in the Amity Horror where the family all goes down to the basement with the dog. You're like, don't go! The gateway to hell's in there! And that's how we're doing it. Um, so it's basically episodes. If you're watching, if you're tempted to watch, I'm just going to phrase my voice. There's a very regal chewing out happening right next to us. Both. If you're going to watch Bloodline, anybody, it episodes one to three, three are great, and then it hits a bit of a lull and it gets a bit dull and a bit slow, but it really picks up again about episode oh, so nine. Stick around. Yeah, so stick oh, around, just stick push around through the lull. Well, it is, it was terrible. a sort of long block actually, so lucky I was on holidays because I had a bit yeah. more time up my sleeve. And but... you were just looking for another yes. angle on the kitchen. Yes. Um, speaking of kitchens, cooking. Can we do cooking just very quickly? Yes, quickly. Now running a bit yes. over probably, but. Yes. Um, I just, can I mention the trifle that you yes. made the other day? Right, okay, so I went round to the sales house and um, she invited you know, um, many uh, interesting people around and served a trifle that we had eaten before together mm -hmm. um, at a, sort of a lunch thing that um, Colin McCabe put on at Women's Weekly, um, Barley Helen McCabe, by the way. Um, and um, it was the most spectacular trifle. It was by Guillaume. Yeah. Guillaume. Oh. It's probably by Guillaume. And it had, and you and I ate, I think, 80% of the trifle oh. that was served. They had entirely. waiters walking around this room with these massive bowls of it. And like I had the first bite and then just positioned myself close to a waiter to keep getting additional. I think I actually ate Gretel Packer's served. Uh, oh, good on you. Yeah. Um, there was lots of thin people at that lunch, but. Uh, <laughs> we weren't sure of them. <laughs> raging around the tables. There's something left over here. It was so, the, so delicious. So that was so, a raspberry and pistachio trifle. It was so unbelievably delicious that I have then spent the best part of the year looking up 
Googling it, Googling that just any person's recipe, Googling him, going to his restaurant website, trying to find is it on there, what's in it, what, what exactly was it, couldn't find it anywhere. And then for Christmas, a friend of mine who doesn't know any of that backstory gives me this book by Guillaume Brahini called Families or something rather. It's a cooking book and what people eat. So I look at it and go, oh my God, flip to the index to see if it's there. And it's there. So that's what I made for you. But it was, it wasn't hard to make, but it had a lot of fiddly, not readily available ingredients. So the, the chief, chief of which was pistachio paste, um, which I gave you a teaspoonful out of the jar. And then I just sort of, oh, it came over all funny. Oh, good stuff. It was it's not like peanut butter or anything. It's like incredibly smooth and silky. And it's sort of like condensed milk. It's called crema. Crema. Oh, it's like the most, I'm not exaggerating, I think it might be the most single delicious thing I've ever put in my mouth. It was just gobsmackingly beautiful. So I'd had that, which you had to slip around finding. My friend Kathy found that for me. Marzipan, like just sort of slightly obscure stuff. Kirsch, which is a cherry liqueur. Um, but once you had all the stuff, it was actually pretty easy. Although it was also very expensive to make because it's got raspberries and pistachio paste and all these things that, you know, probably evened out to be about that $15 sort of a serve. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, oh man, wasn't it the most delicious thing? It was thing? so good. I took, a, I took home a little container of it and then I ate every single bit of that container <laughs> myself over the course of about three days. And that's the thing about trifles, it just keeps getting better. And um, that pistachio sponge. Yeah. I know, you just want, you want to make your trifle like three days ahead of when you actually want to serve it, I think. Now, just quickly before you run out of time, um, something that I watched on the holidays it just filled me with joy. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen any of those car karaoke clips from James Corden's late night show in the United States? He does one oh, with no. Adele. Yeah. It, basically, the premise that he's got my dream job. He drives yeah. people around, famous musicians, and they sing along to their own songs with him in the car. Oh, yeah, it's just so great. But it's only great when the other person plays along and it's yeah. good fun. Yeah. So he does one with um, Adele and oh, it was just it was mind-blowingly good. I read a thing, a blog that the producer talked about it. He said, I think they shot 50 minutes or something and put it down to 15. And he said, you could have run every frame of the 50 minutes. It was just so good. And then there was one, you just get into a rabbit hole of YouTube clicking because there's a whole lot of them. Yeah. Um, and then you diversify into like that one of the cop um, singing um, uh, Shake It Off. <laughs> yeah. I thought, yeah. oh, that's still... Everyone's done Shake It Off. But there's one with Stevie Wonder where he's driving around with Stevie Wonder who I just adore. I hope he's driving. He is, but there's a bit of a gag about that. But oh, um, he gets Stevie Wonder. Uh, anticipated by me. <laughs> James, <laughs> James Corden's wife is a big Stevie Wonder fan, and so James Corden gets Stevie Wonder to ring his wife. And Stevie Wonder sings down the phone line, I just called to say I love you, but he sings, I just called to say James loves you. And then he, oh, it was like James Corden was bawling. Oh, I was bawling. It was just, oh, God, it was just, because it's, it's Stevie Wonder. Oh, my God. Almost anyway. time went back to work, isn't it, Sales? Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> the million-dollar trifle. Anyway, um, I will conclude by saying I have been cooking my way through Nigel Lawson's new book, mm -hmm. and I'm saving for last this unbelievably fabulous recipe. There's, there's some really interesting stuff in there, some unusual stuff in there, like there's a vegan chocolate cake, which is, I don't know how it works, but it really is so good, even if you're not a vegan. Right. Um, but um, the thing that is definitely not vegan, that I'm 
wending my way towards is this thing called Old Rag Pie. Oh, Where yeah, you, you get, mentioned that, yeah. I've already talked about yeah. that. Oh, my God. <laughs> or maybe just to me, oh, I can't no, remember. Well, I think you might have just talked to me about it, not uh, on the podcast. Okay. Yeah. Just so, yeah. Sure. But we never talk apart from the podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, no, no, no. I feel no, a conversation coming on. No, I think we, I think we have, because remember I made that cake that I sent you a picture of, and yeah. you then rang me and said, oh, that cake's in the yes. Niger... I know where you've got yeah, that cake from, yeah, and then I think we... all these bunt cakes. Bunt? Bunt? I say bunt, but okay. it's probably bunt. You're probably Let's right. I say vale. You say valet. And I know that valet is right, but it's one of those words that, you know, when you're a reader, you get the... Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, just say it to everyone what I'll drag. Hi. Oh, yeah. So, quickly, it's... Um, you get a pack of um, phyllo pastry and a baking dish and you butter, you know, of course, the phyllo pastry and put a couple of layers in. And then the interior of the pie is beaten eggs and cheese... And uh, and then you scrunch up like whole sheets of the filo and kind of shove it in. Instead of doing that painful buttering, laying, whatever, you just scrunch it all up. And um, so it becomes this sort of cheesy, eggy, pastry kind of parcel. And then you just put honey all over it. And oh. it's a kind of a dessert. It's like feta cheese, so it's salty. And then when it's baked, you pour more honey over it. So it's this one of these like beautifully confusing dishes mm. that is just right up my alley because it's salty and sweet and a bit like, what is this? And it reminds me of this absolutely spectacular dish that I had once at a restaurant called Apollo, which is in Potts Point. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, they serve a saganaki, you know, like that Greek fried cheese. Mm. They make it with um, Kefala Graviera cheese pronunciation. I don't know if that's correct. But it's this kind of like firm... Um, very salty um, cheese that happens to just respond very well to being put in a pan and fried. Yes, I've eaten that it's too. Like, it's like the bits that run off the end of your cheese sandwich and get all crusty and delicious, mm. but it's all like that, my God. Anyway, they make one of those that has... Um, ro- I think it's rosemary. Maybe it's thyme. What's happening to my brain? I think rosemary and honey. It's just, Yum. dear God. I know, I've so eaten that too. It's so delicious. Mm-hmm. All right, seems to be the lunch yeah, hour rush now, get, so we better get, get going. So we'll look forward to talking to you all again soon.